The Ice Analytics Podcast is sponsored by MyBookie. As you guys know, there's no other sport like hockey, from the fast tempo to the fights to the highlight reel plays, and there's no better way to make it more exciting than laying some money on it with MyBookie.ag. Nobody gives you more ways to win than they do. They have the best payouts and better odds than any other sports book out there. And I wouldn't be telling you this if they weren't the best. And if you join MyBookie now, they will match your first deposit 50% up to $1,000. That means if you deposit $100, you'll get extra $50 of free money. Just use the promo code THPN to activate the offer. Visit MyBookie.ag today. Play, you win, you get paid. Just remember to use that promo code THPN. On this episode of Ice Analytics, I'm going to be looking at the different scoring eras within the NHL. What is driving up or down scoring rates? I'm also going to be interviewing Odd Man Rush to get his take on what some of the contributing factors are in more or less goal scoring over time. This is Ice Analytics, which is proudly part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to episode six of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. Excited to bring you another edition of Deep Analytical Thinking on a Topic. This one is our first fan-submitted topic. I don't think it was intended to be, but it's one of those things where you strike up a conversation with somebody, they pose a question... You know, I wasn't feeling 100% satisfied with the answer that I gave. So I wanted to take the time to dig a little deeper on the question of scoring rates, the number of goals that are scored per game. They've gone up over the years. They've gone down over the years. There are several well-defined eras of scoring, the dead puck era, etc., etc. What exactly is driving or suppressing scoring rates throughout the NHL over time? That's going to be followed up with an interview with Odd Man Rush, someone who is doing historical pieces for his YouTube channel. And I really wanted to get his perspective as a student of history of the game and of the league. Let's do it. A prevailing narrative is that scoring is fill in the blank. It's either up, it's down, it's sideways, it's backwards, what have you. Every time you look around, there's another article, there's another segment on TSN, ESPN about scoring rates compared to previous years, decades, or eras. And I think this really begs the question, what do we know about scoring? And can we assess why it has fluctuated over the years? So here's what we're gonna do. First of all, we're going to look at scoring over time. Just generally speaking, how much has it really changed over time? Then we're going to take more of a historical narrative approach on this topic. And I know this is an analytics podcast, but I think it's really important for this particular topic because it is more in line with a qualitative approach than using a statistical approach. So you know what, we're going to look at and survey the landscape of how the NHL has changed over time, big rule changes, paradigm shifts, and then we're going to move to the statistical analysis because I actually, I've got an answer for you. I can explain to you by the end of this podcast, you will know without a doubt why scoring rates fluctuate year to year 
I can give you the exact, I can, I can pinpoint the exact cause. Right off the bat, scoring has fluctuated significantly over the history of the league. In the 102-year history of the NHL, scoring has ranged from 2.78 goals per game to 9.96 goals per game, with the median number of goals being about 5.7 goals a game. And just for reference, that's actually the same number of goals per game that we've seen this season, in the 2019-2020 season. This is a median season. For most of the league's history, scoring per game has ranged between about 5 goals a game and and 6.5 goals a game. But there have been several eras that totally blew this out of the water. From 1924 to 1940, there was significantly less scoring. And from 1978 to 1993, there was a massive spike in scoring. The first thing I want to do is a quick historical analysis looking at these different eras within the NHL. Once upon a time, hockey was born. And for the first 12 years or so, before 1929... It was really a ragtag association. You had the National Hockey Association, which included a couple of Montreal teams, a Toronto team, an Ottawa team. There was some uh, small expansion. But the first season of play in 1917, teams scored an average of 4.9 goals per team. That's 10 goals a game, almost 10 goals a game in the inaugural NHL season. By 1929, that number had declined to 2.8 goals a game. So... The first 12 years of the league was very formative in understanding the rules. Obviously, defensive strategy took more of a prominent role. The league recognized that 2.8 goals a game was not a sustainable model. So they actually introduced some additional rules that doubled goal scoring. Uh, There were fundamental rule changes, including allowing forward passes in the defensive zone. Before 1928, it was forbidden to pass the puck to a teammate located in front of you. So kind of like rugby, um, very strange. I I can't even imagine what this game looked like in its inception. But here's the kicker. You still couldn't make a forward pass in the offensive zone. That was 1929. A year later, a rule change came into effect that allowed forward passes in the offensive zone. But no passes were allowed across either blue line. They also changed the goaltender puck freezing rule and increase the number of players on the roster from 12 to 15. At this time or prior to this time, there were players playing 40, 50 minutes a night. It should come to no one's surprise that this doubled goal scoring between the 28-29 and 29-30 seasons. And they actually had to introduce an offside rule mid-season because Goal scoring was off the charts in 1929. This ushered in a period of stability during the 1930s. There was only one very subtle change, and that was mandatory Zamboni use in 1940, which created consistency and accelerated the pace of the game a little bit, and it did result in a small bump in goal scoring. The first major event that altered goal scoring was World War II and the red line. Many hockey players joined the armed forces which reduced the amount of talent and created a very sloppy and frantic game during the war period when by the time the war ended goal scoring actually returned and settled around pre-war levels about six per game 
The other contributing factor to the rise in scoring was the introduction of the red line. The red line was introduced to speed up the game, reduce the number of offsides. Since 1929, it had been possible to pass the puck to a teammate in front of you as long as you were in the same zone. So pucks couldn't cross any of the blue lines. But in 1943, the league introduced the red line, which allowed passes through the blue line. This is the two-line rule. So long as the puck doesn't cross the two lines, it's a permitted forward pass. Scoring actually declined every year from the year it was introduced, 1943, until 1954. And as I mentioned before, by 1948, scoring rates had returned to pre-war levels. So there wasn't really a whole lot to tinker with. There were a few rule changes throughout the 48 to 72 period, including a 1951 rule change that increased the net size by a foot in width and a foot in length, also increasing the number of players in the lineup from 15 to 16 to 18 in 1954. And probably most important is the introduction of stick curves in 1966. 1972 introduced the golden age of goal scoring, where the number of goals averaged per game eclipsed seven. Goaltenders were saving less than 89%. We saw a rise in fighting. We saw the instigator rule be introduced in 1976, which imposed an additional five-minute major Goal scoring remained off the charts until about 1992. And from 1992 to 1995, we really saw things decline. They returned to normalcy. Then we saw the 2005 lockout. This was probably the single most number of changes that we saw at one time in the history of the NHL. The league eliminates the two-line offside thus making the transition game between offense and defense even faster. Passes could be made from the defensive zone to the red line. The netminder no longer could leave the net and play the puck, thanks to Marty Brodeur. Teams that ice the puck could no longer make line changes. Several new rules were instituted that restricted the size of goaltender equipment, reducing it by over 10%. And what happened was scoring increasing significantly that season. 2005-2006 saw scoring at levels that hadn't been seen the previous decade. But after that season, they've been in decline ever since. And only until about 2016 did we start to see scoring on the rise again. That was a nice story. You got to hear the last seven minutes about how the rules have changed the game, how some of the rules potentially impacted scoring throughout the league, whether we've seen an explosion of goals or we've seen a reduction in goals. Before the 1963 season, this is all we've got. We don't have a lot of good data going back that far, and that's why we had to rely on more of a historical analysis of you know big sweeping rule changes that either encouraged or reduced the amount of scoring throughout the league. But since 1963, there is one metric that explains better than any other why the number of goals scored go up and down throughout the NHL. Not to keep you in suspense, that metric is the power play. You may be asking yourself, what does the power play have to do with goal scoring? Well, the number of power play opportunities and the 
power play percentage, the success of scoring a goal on the power play, are combined are the two most important metrics for explaining the fluctuation in scoring. If you want to know why goal scoring peaked in the 1981-82 season where teams were scoring four goals a game, so you had eight, eight goal games. That was the average in 1981-1982. It's probably because the power play was scoring, on average, 23% of the chances. To put that in perspective, the average power play this season is scoring south of 20%. That 3% increase in power play success translates to a significant number of goals that are being scored. And the number of opportunities teams have to go on the power play also affects goal scoring. The reason why scoring was off the charts in the 2005-2006 season, the season after returning from the lockout, it's not because teams are so much more efficient on the power play, but they were afforded significantly more opportunities than any other time since the data has been recorded. Since the 63 season, the 2005-2006 numbers blow every other season out of the water when it comes to the amount of power plays that were called, even though the success rate on those power plays was not as high as the mid 80s. So how significant are these things? Well, if you're looking at the number of goals scored per game, power play percentage accounts for a whopping 70% of the variation. If you include in the number of opportunities that you have, as well as your success rate, 82% of the variation in goals scored per game is reliant on those two factors since 1963. In other words, about 18% of the variation in goal scoring can be explained by these other rules. And obviously, before this data became available, significant rule changes that we saw during the formation of the league in the early decades of the league had a profound impact on goal scoring. Well, there you have it, folks. If you've ever wondered why goal scoring has fluctuated over the years or over the decades, or what impacts goal scoring rates, obviously rule changes have had a lot to do with it, and we don't have that data going back before 1963, but it's hard to imagine that the rule changes, whether it be red lines or blue lines or equipment or stick curves, didn't have an impact on goal scoring. But in recent decades, special teams is the reason why goal scoring has gone up, period. And on that note, let's switch gears here and move on to the stat chat. Today on stat chat, I'm joined by Odd Man Rush. You can find him on YouTube at Odd Man Rush. Also, the Brits on Bruins podcast on the Hockey Podcast Network. You can find him on Twitter at Brits on Bruins. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Pretty good. I mean, uh, like we said before we started recording, we've got a bit of a time difference going on here. Uh, it's my first guest appearance on another podcast, so I'll be on my best behavior, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to toss you a softball question early because I think we uh, we need to talk about the Bruins here for a second. I mean, they've been a dominant force in the Atlantic Division so far. If you look at the way they're playing this year compared to last year, I mean, their goaltending and defense is is 
then I feel like it's a standard for them to be in the near the top of the league in both those categories. But their goal scoring is is up this year from last year, even though their expected number of goals is down a little bit. Uh, if you haven't fallen asleep yet from from all that, <laughs> how are you feeling about their performance this season? And, and do you expect any sort of regression throughout the rest of the year? So with the Bruins this year, obviously I've been covering it twice a week, uh, all season long with myself and my co-host. Um, the one thing I'd say about this Bruins team is, at the moment, I'm not quite sure which Boston Bruins team to expect night in and night out. Uh, we either get, which we've had for some of this this 2020 calendar year recently, we have the team that their depth just cannot score to save their lives. Uh, and basically, Pasternak, Marchand, Bergeron have to do all the work offensively. Um, Rask and Halak have been solid for the Boston Bruins. They have been absolutely fantastic. I have pitched on Brits on Bruins many times that they should be in the conversation for the best duo of goaltenders in the league as a whole. Um, I think they make a very strong case um, because when the Boston Bruins defense collapses a little bit and maybe not, maybe don't do as good of a job as they could do on uh, covering their opposing players, Rask and Halak have to stand up tall. And I, I think something that this podcast might keep an eye on more so than some of the other hosts on the other shows on the network. Boston don't often outshoot their opponents. And we've noticed a couple of games recently, um, especially against some of the, the stronger, bigger teams in the league, like the, the Washington Capitals and the Islanders, that the shots are either really close with the opposing team taking it, or in the case of the Washington game we covered a couple of weeks ago, uh, Washington absolutely shot completely at uh, the Boston Bruins net. I think they, I think it was a differential of like 40 shots to 20 or something like that by, by the end of the final buzzer. So the, the main two problems or the main two things that I keep, we keep talking about on our podcast is we need the depth scoring to keep turning up because the first line, they're doing fine. They have done all season. When the depth scoring turns up, they play great. And the second thing is they need to play well five on five. They've had for the most part, really strong specialty teams this year. Their power play and penalty kill are usually in the top uh, top five, top ten in the league this season. It, it's just, they have the problem that when they do those things right, some other things don't work so well. And when they do those other things, the things I just mentioned don't go so well. They're, they're still trying to piece it all together. And it's been a, it's a bit, been a bit of a roller coaster these last couple of weeks, but they're still doing okay, as, as you know, by the Atlantic Division standings. They just need to keep going, really, don't they? That's right. One of the things that we've seen this every year at the trade deadline, it seems like the Bruins are buyers. And this year, do you expect that to be the same? I mean, it looks like they're they're going to have a strong position making the playoffs this year. Uh, probably, I don't want to jinx them, but probably the number one seed in the Atlantic. I couldn't see them falling past the second seed in the Atlantic. Do you expect them to do a deadline deal like they have in the past? I mean, don't count the Tampa Bay Lightning out. They're playing very well at the moment, and they've woken up after a bit of a slow uh, start to the season. So if Boston keep playing the way that they're playing and Tampa keep playing the way that they're playing, I could see us dropping to second. And of course, we've got the Maple Leafs that have jumped up recently with the hiring of Sheldon Keefe. So it's going to be very interesting to see where that one, two, three slots with the three different teams. But in terms of the trade deadline, it's a it's a tough situation for the Bruins because they're on the lookout for that secondary scoring. They obviously picked up Charlie Coyle at the uh, trade deadline last year. They've now signed him to a big extension. He's really happy to be part of the Bruins. He's not really scoring as much as I and maybe some other Bruins fans might have hoped. 
But his playoff run last year has kind of made up for that. If they get back to the playoffs, which they should do, and Charlie Coyle picks up his scoring tear like he did last year, then it should work out fine. The problem is they don't have much salary cap space and they have several key restricted free agents that are coming up or unrestricted free agents. Tory Krug is a big guy they definitely should sign. I, um, we're not sure whether the, it's, a, it's a lock-in for them to re-sign him or if they're going to see how the season goes, but I'm very much a big fan of Tory Krug in the black and gold of the Boston Bruins. He needs to be re-signed to this team. He's basically their quarterback on the power play. Their power play is the third, I think, at the time of this recording, third-ranked power play in the league. Like He's a big part of that. He's usually getting the, the primary or secondary assists on any goal that's scored on that first power play unit. In terms of whether they're going to buy at the deadline, it, it's tough because they have the behemoth contract of David Backus that they could really do with getting rid of. There's $6 million there that they could put into a reliable depth scorer to help make their playoff run even stronger. It, it's kind of, they've got, about a million different things to juggle at the moment and the salary cap is kind of the biggest one so I'm not too sure if they're going to be buyers at the deadline I think if they find somebody for the right price or a team willing to take on maybe a bad contract uh, or a portion of that bad contract maybe something could be worked out but I think for the most part maybe barring a, a third or fourth line guy that's on like a cheap contract I don't really see anything huge happening for the Bruins at the deadline. Fair enough. Just to jump into this week's topic and, and shift gears here for a second. And, and I thought you were going to leave me the perfect segue when you were talking about uh, Krug on the power play, because there is definitely a, a strong relationship between historical goal scoring and the power play. And it's something that I talked about in our, in the previous segment where there's, there's these three distinct eras where you see power play efficiency rising and declining and and on the rise again but what isn't as clear and which is why I'm really glad to have someone with with your background and and the work that you've done with odd man rush is understanding looking at the evidence or looking at the the history why do you think the power play became so efficient from 1963 when the the earliest data became available until the mid 1980s so my biggest guess would be, uh, well, one of the biggest things I would imagine is due to how the power play was structured back in the, the 60s and the 70s. I can't remember exactly the date or exactly when the NHL changed the rule, um, but it might have been before the 60s, so don't quote me on that. But um, there, the power play used to run where if you scored a goal on the power play, the player would still sit in the box for the remainder of the time that the uh, penalty, uh, the, the time on the penalty had to run. So it was the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, I believe it was roughly between the 60s and the 70s. Um, because their power play was so good and they scored so many goals with the man out of the box, the NHL decided to completely change the rule and go, if the team scores a goal on the power play, then the player that took the penalty leaves the box and the power play is over. It's, it's quite interesting how... A team was so good at scoring with a man down that, that the NHL literally had to rewrite the rules in order to to stop so many power play goals being scored. And obviously with the 60s to the 80s, we're talking 50, 60 years ago in terms of what the game was like. So I, I think it's important to keep the context in mind. We're talking about guys, for the most part, goalies didn't wear uh, masks for the most part. Players didn't wear helmets. Uh, they didn't have as 
as a strong technology, if if that makes any sense in terms of how their their hockey sticks are now kind of every single part of it is perfectly created for the certain player. They just had pieces of lumber that were shaped like hockey sticks and um, they weren't wearing a huge amount of padding. It was all very, you you imagine, you've got to remember like what the world was like during the 1960s to the 1980s. It looks like a completely different time because it was. So I think the power play being so good then is the fact that teams had that man advantage. There wasn't the the incredible uh, goaltending that we have nowadays. There were still some great goaltenders, obviously, but the, the game was just so completely different that there were easier ways or more different ways to score goals. Add to that the Montreal Canadiens having, uh, having scoring so many goals and rewriting the rules. Um, you've got to think of how many teams got to score how many power play goals if the player, if he took a two-minute penalty say they scored two or three goals on that two-minute penalty. Like, you wouldn't see that happen nowadays unless it was a double minor or, or, a, or a game misconduct or something. So it, it's really interesting thinking back to that time and some of the good players or some of the star players that were there. And just when, when you look at it from the year 2020, you think, wow, that was such a long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's spot on. I mean, the, the technology, the, the rules, I mean, there's a lot of factors that went into it. What's interesting, though, is the subsequent decline uh, from from the 1984 until 1998 where we saw both goal scoring and power play production drop almost to pre-1963 levels and I, i'm curious and I, I think you might have uh given a little bit of a teaser in your last comment about the goaltenders do you, do you think goaltending had something to do with that Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. I mean, you've got to, uh, f- between the years 1984 to 1998, you've got to remember guys like Dominic Hasek and Martin Brodeur were either breaking into the league or becoming superstars in the league. So they're guys that, I mean, especially the dominator, they changed the way that the goaltending position was played. Uh, the 80s were obviously a time where stand-up goalies were, were all the rage. And they, to be honest, they couldn't really stop a beach ball for the most part, they very much had to rely on their, their defense, uh, hitting anybody that gets anywhere close to them. There were so many high scoring games in the 80s. It was kind of the golden years of goal scoring. Obviously, throwing the guys like Gretzky and and, uh, and Mark Messier and that Oilers dynasty of the 80s and the, the Islanders dynasty of the 80s. You've, you've got some incredible hockey players that knew how to score goals. But then more towards the end of that period, we're now starting to talk about the dead puck era as well where uh, I think I was reading something about it recently, the levels of scoring, uh, not necessarily on the power play, but in general, were dropping to as low as two and a half goals a game. And that, that seems ridiculous. And I, I think that's got to do with some of the rule changes and why it's gone up recently. I, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a moment. But you've got to remember during say, uh, 1984 to 1998, I believe it was still the case because I don't think the rule was removed until the 2005 lockout. Um, The two-line pass rule, um, pretty much up until 2005, you couldn't pass the puck from your blue line to the opposing team's blue line. It was basically considered the same as an offside. So there were no stretch passes, there were no breakaways or very little breakaways, especially from that uh, type of uh, situation. So you got to think like think about the NHL nowadays, how many breakaways players get, how many passes from blue line to blue line, especially on the power play, when you've got that 
a bit more of that open ice or teams are going on a change and you want to get that stretch pass out like it's that is such a huge monumental change and it was one of those one of those rules that at the time I'm sure nobody thought much of it but now that we look back it's been 15 years since the two line pass was removed people think it was a ridiculous rule and I, I think rightly so it, it doesn't make any sense if you want to keep hockey such a fast-paced game there there's no point having a rule that has to make them so but yeah the 80s and the 90s obviously we've had some of if not the best players to have ever played in the NHL during that time it was once again similar to the 60s it was a completely different era even to the 60s we had superstar guys we had goaltenders trying to reinvigorate how the position was played technology had taken that noticeable step forward um players were obviously getting a lot better the I, I think it might have something to do also with the strategy. Perhaps this might be a bit of a reach, but hear me out here. The uh, the Red Army hockey team, obviously the the Soviets. This was obviously their heyday. Uh, the the seventies to the eighties was obviously uh, their most successful or the most successful period in hockey history. They were the most successful international team. Their philosophy was obviously make sure everyone touches the puck, pass it first, and then find the perfect opportunity to score. Back then, when the NHL were playing the Soviet Unions, it was all about get your superstar up the ice, let him score the goal, let him do the work. You've got their superstars for a reason. So that kind of mentality of it's a team game and make sure that if there's a good opportunity to pass, pass that puck, don't worry about taking it all the way up the zone by yourself. That kind of bled into the NHL as well. And rightly so. Obviously, we had Soviet players moving over and coaches obviously seeing how this game was played and going, well, we can't stop it. So we have to, if you can't beat them, join them in a sense. So I feel like as a long-winded answer, that's essentially why there was a, a bit of a change in the 80s and the 90s, you know? No, I like that. That makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Uh, the the effect that European players had on the NHL, which was prior to that more of a North America game, and the styles were were a lot different absolutely um the the styles were completely different and the interesting thing is um the soviet the leader of the soviet union at the time stalin which we're talking way way back in the past now aren't we um the whole idea about the soviet union team came about he decided he wanted to create the best hockey nation in the world he didn't see why obviously with the social and um military context going on during the cold war and everything that's a completely different matter but he wanted to show russian dominance in the way of sport having uh, the the biggest the strongest the most talented men and hockey players in the world and for the most part they achieved that <laughs> so i i think it's quite impressive and then obviously you had guys like yari curie coming over you had these these uh finnish players the scandinavian players starting to bleed their way into the NHL they had their own European style of playing and then obviously coaches would see that and go well if they're such a talented player we're not going to try and teach them the quote-unquote North American style because that's just going to limit their abilities to play well so the 80s were a crazy time man <laughs> no doubt so I, I know you had already touched on this earlier but if you look at the most recent era you know since 1999 and then the 2005 lockout really accelerated the pace of power play success and efficiency. But what's interesting is that the number of power play opportunities have been on the decline. So teams are getting less opportunities, but are just more efficient 
now than they were, you know, 20 years ago. And I know you had mentioned a few of the changes in the CBA, and there was a lot. I mean, I think this the, the 2005 lockout and the new CBA, uh, you're talking, like you said, about the, the two-line passes, uh, salary caps. Uh, I mean, there was you know, goaltender equipment was reduced for the first time. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened during that CBA. Um, what, what, what stands out to you as far as maybe the reasons for, you know, uh, power play opportunities being at historically low rates, but the power play efficiency being at almost historically high rates? Well, I think if you compare it to, say, uh, post-lockout, I think the perhaps the league as a whole were just a, they were going through a bit of a transition period and they weren't quite sure what they wanted, perhaps. I mean, nowadays, just take sort of post-lockout or even from 2010 to 2020, concussions are a thing now. Uh, the player safety has become... For, even though some suspensions and calls might not suggest it, player safety has become the most important thing or appears to be at the utmost importance for the National Hockey League, making sure that uh, concussions are limited as much as possible. Players that are uh, showing symptoms of concussions or any type of other injuries are related to maybe not so obviously obvious when you look at them. Uh, they're kind of at the forefront of everybody's minds. Um, obviously, we've had over the last sort of four or five years, hooking calls and slashing calls have been more refined. Even just tapping a player's gloves with a stick nowadays can result in a hooking call. If you said if you said that in 1999, uh, that everybody would have thought you were crazy. Like that's that's just a normal play that happens. We hear so many ex-players during the sort of uh, the late 90s to the early 2000s uh, reminiscing about how they used to play the game and saying. The stuff that happened nowadays, like that was commonplace. Um, I remember when uh, Conor McDavid scored his incredible goal when he moved past Morgan Riley and got it past Frederick Anderson. There were a lot of players talking about um, comparing some of the best goals ever in NHL history. And one of them was talking about Mario Lemieux back in his heyday and how there was one goal that he scored where he'd been slashed like five different times. But back then, that didn't mean anything. Uh, nowadays, there would have been a double minor called on it. it. It's just the game's changed so much recently. Player safety is such an important part of the game nowadays because we have examples of ex-players potentially suing the National Hockey League because they they feel like the league didn't do enough to make sure that their health was put at the forefront. And it's all about public perception as well. If the league is seen to not be doing enough to take care of these these. Uh, these players and take care of their players and their injuries and obviously the players association that's pri like their primary purpose yeah it, it, it's just it's just strange to see like uh 1999 to say the the uh, 2005 lockout i feel like the league wasn't quite sure it was kind of in a bit of a transition period i think a lot of the rules with all the technology and all of the changes that were happening in the game a lot of the rules were very clearly showing their age like goalies being able to have pads the size of skyscrapers and two-line passes still being a thing. I feel like I feel like the league was kind of trying to figure out what needed to happen next. It was kind of looking, obviously, like we've talked about the 1960s and the rules like uh, the player can come out of the box. Obviously, a very big change. Uh, we talk about the 80s, the goal-scoring heyday. Uh, players now starting to figure out how to play what we see now as the butterfly hybrid goaltender position. You look at the 90s, all of that stuff is still happening, but for a lot of it, the rules have stayed the same. And then you're seeing, you're seeing that the two sides kind of headbutt each other a little bit. 
uh, one side is going, oh, but we need the two-line pass rule. But the other side is going, but our players are just too fast now. They, they have better skates. They're, they're more conditioned. I mean, if we compare the typical hockey player in the year 2003 to the year 1963, I mean, the players nowadays, they take care of their bodies. Uh, I don't think you'd see many of them smoking cigars in the locker room nowadays. Right. Um, so it, it, it's all about, it's all about the, the little changes that kind of add up. And I think the 1999 to sort of pre-2004-2005 lockout era was the two sides kind of butting heads a little bit and going, okay, we kind of need to make a each side kinding kind of needing to make a a, a few um, changes to their own uh, their own strategies or their own situations to benefit the game as a whole. Because I mean, l- like I said previously, compare the dead puck era to nowadays. Two and a half goals a game. Sure, defensive games are good to watch, but not for 82 games in an entire season. You like to see a game that seven goals are scored by one team. Or like the Tampa Bay game recently against Vancouver, they won 9-2. Unless you're a Canucks fan, you like to see a game like that every once in a while. But you also, come playoff time, like to see a, a, a close 2-1, 1-0 game. So it, it's, it's about opening up the game, I think. And I think this is, they've made continuous steps every year, I think, uh, since the lockout to make sure that the game opens up that little bit more. And I would imagine your stats say it, we've seen an improvement in the goals per game to a point where fans are enjoying it, players are enjoying it, goaltenders are as good as they've ever been. So it kind of benefits everyone. Where do you see this going in the future? Because the past three seasons, uh, we've seen a, a small uptick in the number of goals per game. And we haven't had three years, three consecutive years where goal scoring has has risen, even just incrementally. It's been like 15, 20 years since we've seen that trend. And I know that just a couple of years ago, they reduced the goalie pad size again, uh, another 10, 15%. Is this an anomaly or is this the trend? Are we in the middle of seeing goal scoring at unprecedented levels five, 10 years from now? Or do you think the league is keeping an eye on this and they're going to try to you know, stabilize this a little bit more? So I think it's going to go one of two ways. Um, I'm not quite sure which one it is going to go, but I could see both of these eventualities happening the first is i wouldn't be surprised if scoring as a whole maybe not so much uh power play numbers or specialty team units although they have been scoring a lot of goals over the last few years um i would imagine it could either go back to say the levels of the 80s especially if they're cracking down on penalties so much that even the smallest of infraction can cause a power play and because the players are so much faster they're so much more talented they have so much more skill compared to some of the players back in those days. Obviously, you had the superstars back then, but you could see, like, obviously, there's so many comparisons between Conor McDavid and Wayne Gretzky. I mean, some warranted, some maybe reaching a little bit, obviously. Uh, I could definitely see the numbers, perhaps even going back to the 80s, where goaltenders are struggling to find a way to keep the puck out of the net. We're obviously seeing recently, maybe over the last five, ten years, tipping goals and deflections have become more of a thing as opposed to straight wrist shots or slap shots or snap shots even. So I could see it going potentially that way where goal scoring has an absolute renaissance and we see a goal scoring go up each year for like five to 10 years and then maybe they have to rein it back a little bit because every team's scoring five goals a game. <laughs> going back to the, the good old days as some people might call it. Right. Or there might be the situation where... 
the league goes, okay, we've now got things at a really comfortable level. We've got these close defensive games. We've got these big blowout games, which, I mean, whether teams like them or not, fans love a game where 10 goals are scored by uh, equally over both teams. Like, they love those kind of games. Even if it's like a 6-5 overtime game, they love the fact that loads of goals have been scored and the result was close at the end. So, I obviously, a lot of the changes that are made are due to what the players think, what the uh, officials think, what the commissioner and uh, the business side of the game thinks. But I think they also have to take into account the fan side of things. Obviously, that doesn't bring them necessarily a obvious, clear benefit. But if you put out an interesting product, more people will come and watch it. It's simple, right? But I think it's either going to go the 80s, maybe more of a scoring renaissance. Maybe we see some changes to how the game is played again. Obviously, take, for example, uh, Andrei Sveshnikov. He's scoring Michigan goals or lacrosse moves uh, every other <laughs> game by the sounds of it nowadays. Um, so that, that had never happened in the NHL ever. So it, I feel like that's a kind of microcosm of some of the differences we have in the NHL nowadays. Uh, fighting is down, obviously. So it's it's more about the speed and skill rather than the size and strength for the most part. Obviously, those players have their place in the game still and they're useful, but it's either going to go really, really continue to keep going up, which I am more leaning towards based on the, the rules that they're putting in, how much care a lot of these athletes are uh, um, are taking with their body and their, their workout routines and making their practice in the off-season. But also, it could potentially go the way that perhaps the NHL has a specific target they want to hit. This is purely speculation, obviously, but perhaps they have a number that they go, okay, we'd like to see goal scoring hit roughly this over a five, 10 year period. Okay, we're happy with that. Let's just try and keep it at this equilibrium because then fans that like any sort of uh, close games, blowout games will be happy with the results. They obviously don't want it to dip back down to the days of the dead puck era. I think if they, I think the one concern is if they keep going with cracking down on some of these rules, there may be a situation where goal scoring does drop. But then again, a lot of the rules they implement are to try and give teams more power play opportunities. We obviously have looked at the offside rule on on uh, power plays and and uh, disallowed goals and goaltender interference is still a very grey area, even though they say it's not, but it definitely is. So. It could go one of several different ways, I think is the, lo- the short answer. But in my opinion, I think it could continue to creep up. And I think it would be better for the game to do so. All right. Well, I got to say that, that was, I really appreciate that. That's some good insight. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the mic for a second. If you have any final thoughts you want to share or anything you want to plug, any projects you're working on or any shout outs you want to have. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, check out Brits on Bruins. Uh, it's the show I do on the Hockey Podcast Network. Um, me and another Brit uh, talk about the Boston Bruins. Um, interestingly, we're recording this the day after Brad Marchand completely whiffed on a shootout goal, which the Boston Bruins have been having a lot of problems with this season already. So if you want to hear two British guys take on the Boston Bruins season so far, then check out Brits on Bruins on the uh, Hockey Podcast Network. Um, also, feel free to... Uh, Come and check out my YouTube channel, Odd Man Rush. Um, I upload hockey videos. I'm a huge hockey fan. I get a lot of people very confused when they hear my voice. Some people think I'm Australian. Some people think I'm Scottish, uh, which I'm not. But it's it's interesting to see what people think. 
Um, I upload all sorts of videos. I look at past players that were in the league and see where they've gone or whatever happened to them, which is actually the name of the series, whatever happened to. And um, I do a lot of interesting stories and uh, the history of the NHL and interesting careers from certain players that might not be in the public eye, but something really cool happened to them during their career. I've got a really interesting one, hopefully coming up uh, later this week, about the the shortest um, debut in NHL history, which actually stands at two seconds before the player was ejected from the game. So that's going to be a really interesting one. I, I've been looking at it a lot, and it's not a, it's a guy that you wouldn't expect to be the person because he's kind of a name that you don't recognise as much. But hopefully, I've I've blabbered on enough, and hopefully, you've got enough to warrant an episode here <laughs> i definitely do and i just want to say uh thanks for taking the time and and uh coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on this stuff i oh, thanks for having me I'd, I'd love to come back on again i love talking about uh stats and the history of the game so you ever need a british opinion on it you know where to find me <laughs> fantastic i'm sure we'll be doing this again perfect this brings us to the conclusion of the episode And this is where I tell you what some of the final thoughts are on this topic of goal scoring in the NHL. This is a really difficult thing to precisely pin down. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of moving pieces, some of which are quantifiable and some of which are not. Not to mention the biggest factor is the game itself. Technology, equipment, strategic improvements by the coaches, players training, there's a lot going on. It's easy to identify the trends. I, you know, I can tell you when goal scoring was up and when goal scoring was down and postulate as to some of the reasons why that is. But one of the observable results of all these improvements that we do have is manifested in power play efficiency. I don't know specifically how this all works, but there's no denying the evidence that power play efficiency and the number of power play opportunities are the primary, a substantial driver of goal scoring over the decades. I don't know exactly how all those other factors contributed to that. I'm going to leave that up to you to fill in the blanks because whether it be stick curves or rule changes or players training regiments, coaches strategy, all of these things factor into this. I'm not going to be able to parse all that out and tell you exactly this is the one moment where things changed. But what I will tell you is this is an extremely good bellwether to understand goal scoring in general. When the power play is more efficient, more goals get scored in games. So not exactly open and shut type of case. It's very complicated. I'm not going to pretend to have all of it figured out. But what I do have figured out is... I can tell you what to look for. I can tell you where these goals are coming from. And I can tell you there's definitely a causal relationship between these things. And that's it. Be sure to tune in next week. Next week, I've got a very special topic. It's going to be about shots, shot quantity, shot quality. It's all going to be about shots. What's going to be really exciting, though, I've got a very special guest, William Lang the curator of icydata.hockey, premier website that offers heat maps along with other advanced analytics. Be sure to check it out next week. And remember, folks, drink and think responsibly. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at Ice Analytics, and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review.